DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. You can't stop me, nothing's gonna stand in my way. Nothing, nothing. I'm gonna fly higher. I'm gonna fly higher. Higher. Welcome to the Donald Thompson Podcast. I'm Donald Thompson, and we're rebranding Hustle Unlimited Podcast. The new name, the Donald Thompson Podcast, is gonna have the same content, same place for dreamers to come and share their wisdom and insight for entrepreneurs and leaders that are forging ahead in the age of COVID. We're putting together season three, which will launch the first week of May. But I wanted to get this episode out in real time because of how topical it is in this new work from home environment. All of our meetings now and for the foreseeable future are in Zoom or another video conferencing software. And as my company was getting used to this, and quite frankly, we still are getting used to it, I noticed that some of the people on our team, and it was usually women, we're opting not to show their face. It got me wondering, why do we put so much pressure on women in the workplace to look a certain way? It doesn't really seem fair. I wrote about it on a LinkedIn post, and the post was trending to the point where I had close to 10,000 people that were viewing it. I definitely hit on something that people wanted to talk about. One of those people who commented right away was Lauren Schumann, who said, I had this exact realization this week. I honestly think it is more about how women feel about themselves. It's a need to be perfect that many women struggle to overcome. Understanding this about women is critical to inclusion strategies. Well, with that, I had to have her on the show. Well, guys, welcome to the DT Podcast. And uh, we're so glad that you could spend some time with us today and take kind of a nice diversion away from the COVID-19 conversation. And let's just really talk about the future. How do we create some self-improvement? How do we look forward and push through the storm? Today's guest is uh, Lauren Shoemake, a highly creative, uh, results-oriented marketing executive, leading Fortune 500 and technology brands to create brand awareness, demand generation. And the thing I love the most is brand and campaign strategies that drive measurable results. The other thing about Lauren that I'm so impressed with and glad to share her talents with our audience is her focus on the education, empowerment, and equity for female executives and emerging leaders. Lauren, welcome to the DT Podcast. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. One of the reasons that we got together, and I'll hit the backdrop, but then I'm going to pass it to you and let you kind of expand upon it. In our company, I was on a video cast with three of my female employees, and they each in unison, when we jumped on the video call, it was almost as they rehearsed it, Don, we're not doing video today. And I was like, okay, that sounds kind of like a command that I should take, right? And I said, okay, fantastic. And we joked about it a little bit. We went on with the meeting. But as I talked a little bit further, and then Megan Hockaday, who's joining us for, for a little bit to ask some questions, who was on that call, we pushed out on my social media, why do we create that pressure for ladies in the workplace to look a certain way every day? What are some of the self-esteem things that go into that decision or that thinking of not wanting to be on video? And Lauren, I'll let you take it from there because you actually jumped on our social media thread and you had some feedback, you had some thoughts. So let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I enjoyed the discussion because I had noticed myself from our company that myself and, and other women within with our organization were, were not joining by video either. And, you know, I'm, I'm very well read in women's issues because I do a lot of presenting and mentoring of young female professionals. And, you know, I said, you know what, I believe that this is very deeply rooted. I think that this really stems from women trying to to be perfect and having very high standards for themselves. And I, I believe that it starts by how we're raised. I think that 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 little girls are told to behave and are dressed in pretty dresses. And our younger brothers are crazy and they're like, oh, he's just so crazy. And and little boys grow up in the professional world to be these risk takers and don't care. And women grow up if they get to the executive level, they they grow up and are very self-conscious and saying, you know, I don't look my best. I'm not perfect right now. I don't want, you know, the corporate world to see me this way. And I really think that that's very much where this stems. I also thought very much about my mother. My mother and her generation was is very much, she used to put lipstick on to walk to the mailbox. And being raised, this model of behavior is that you're, your beauty is equal to your self-worth. And I think that it's it's something that that will not change unless we raise our daughters differently. One of the things, and that's powerful, right, in terms of the starting from childhood. And then as we come into the workplace, all of us have things that are built into our environment, how we were raised and, and our perceptions. What are some things that we can do to raise that self-esteem, to raise that awareness in our female employees to really give them the platform to think about some of these things a little differently? Yeah, I think that women exert certain behaviors that hold us back as a gender. And, you know, things like, and again, it's, it stems for how we're taught to behave when we're children. You know, we're told to be quiet and behave ourselves. And so when we get to the corporate world, we have difficulty speaking up and speaking our minds and taking risks and negotiation. One of the things that I see a lot in the hiring that I've done of, of marketers on my team is that when it comes time to to extend an offer, in one situation, a woman said, I really want to work for you. I'm willing to take a pay cut. And I said, well, why would you do that? Because I know a male counterpart would never have that discussion with me. And in that situation, I knew what she was paid and, and gave her what I felt was her value, which I would have hoped, you know, 
came from her in the first place. But these behaviors are very rampant. Um, the other thing, too, is a lot of female professionals, they strive toward leadership, but they don't realize that they're, they can be a leader from whatever role that they sit in. And so, mm. you know, going the extra mile and saying, you know what, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to take on a new project. I'm going to be a leader from where I sit is something that I don't see that enough women understand that they can do that and that their leadership a lot of times is their own responsibility. And I don't see that men have the same behaviors that hold them back that, that so many women do. I think that apprehension, and I want to drill into the negotiation piece for a minute, because I see that a lot as well. And then from the same perspective in that conversation, we have the numbers that show the pay gap, right, between men and women that are doing the same job. And so a lot of times what will occur is you read this information and then it puts the full onus on the employee or employer, excuse me, to make that change. When a lot of times I've found that ladies will accept the first offer, right? Yes. And so what do we do to in that talent pipeline to teach, to educate about some of those skills that it's okay to ask for what you're, you're worth? It's what are the phrases that they can use that they feel good about asking for what's next, but they don't feel like they're putting at risk the opportunity and that fear of asking for more? Yeah, I think it comes down to a lot of women don't understand or even necessarily believe their self-worth. There's a lot of sort of imposter syndrome, if you will. Mm -hmm. And there's been several studies to this degree that, that fascinate me. There's a, a study that HP uh, Hewlett-Packard did in 2014, where when they had a job posting, they found that their male employees, if they were 60% qualified, they would put their name in the hand and apply for the job. Well, they found that women employees, you won't even believe this, women employees would not put their name in the hat unless they were 100% qualified for that job posting. So what does that say? Another thing that is very rampant is if a man interviews for a job and doesn't have the skills that is being asked of him, he will say, yes, I have those skills. A woman <laughs> who is interviewing, right? They'll say, you know, yeah, oh, I've done that tons, right? A, a woman who is interviewing for the same job, and I've seen this so many times in how I've hired people through the years, a woman will say, no, I don't have that skill, but I'm, I'll, I'll learn. I'm a really good learner, Okay. So if you're the employer, who are you going to hire? You know, who are you going to hire in those situations? And so, you know, how do we change that? We change that by telling women that I use the expression be and you'll become. One thing that women don't understand is, you know, I work for many CEOs, tremendous male executives. And quite frankly, I figured out they didn't know how to do everything. They're really smart. They're really good decision makers. But I used to sit there and go, wow, I don't think I know how to do this and, and be scared about it. And I think so many women don't realize that if you're a good decision maker and you jump in with both feet and you be the job, you'll become that executive and that leader you want to be. And for some reason, there's a disconnect. There is a thought that, oh, that person must have so much more than me. And it stems from the need to be perfect. If they are not perfect, then there's no way they can be qualified for this job because that job needs a perfect person. And it's very unreasonable and it's very unkind. Women have a tendency to be super unkind with ourselves. There's a big problem 
amongst women in the topic of rumination. Rumination is when something happens and you think about it to death about how you approached it the wrong way, but you can't get it out of your mind. And men do it too, but research shows that women do it so much worse and it really causes a lot of depression and and a lot of lack of confidence. So there's a lot of confidence issues amongst women that I see a lot of and that I read a lot of articles of similar themes. So one of the things that I would like to expand on from my perspective, obviously as a male, as a business leader that, that works with a lot of people across the spectrum of gender and race and different things, is that component of self-esteem and self-image that we apply to work. A lot of times we'll use the phrase, it's not just business, it's personal. When the reality is everything is intensely personal that we bring to work and in terms of finding our best self. And I think the thing that I've found that I've tried to do, doesn't mean I'm there yet, but I've tried to do, is let people get comfortable with making mistakes. That doesn't mean your standards aren't high. It just means in that particular instance, you did not do 100% of what's required. In business, the goal is not perfection. It's actually your response to the agility around how do you correct problems? And that's actually the difference between the leaders anyway. Because my thinking is, if you're not making mistakes, then the job's too easy. It's not stretch. It's not valuable enough, right? There's already a manual for it. At the executive level, you're doing things that are unchartered. So that means try, fail, and adjust is really part of the territory. Yeah, women have a really hard time with what you're talking about. And in in this book I was recommending called How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson, she talks about how actually perfectionism hurts women's careers in the way that you just described, because we're not raised to be risk takers. And I think one thing that I recognized about myself is as a child, I was quite a tomboy. I had a, a younger brother and we had neighborhood friends and I spent half my childhood in the tree, in trees, hanging upside down and coming home with, you know, messy hair. And I was given a lot of freedom to just be me and take risks and do silly, stupid childhood things. And I don't know that a lot of women are raised like that. And so when you tell them they're allowed to fail, the only way I think you can really accomplish that is if from top down, you really show that that's the truth. Because a lot of women will still have self-doubt that, yeah, you're saying it, but do you really mean it? And you have to realize, too, that the corporate world is really owned mostly by male businessmen. And a lot of women struggle because we don't communicate like men in a lot of ways. So we struggle and we put forth a lot of effort to fit in when sometimes we just want to fit. I read books by Brene Brown and other tremendous authors that talk about authenticity, but it becomes very difficult in a lot of ways for women to truly be their most authentic self when there's male biases that are the standards of the work environment that we're in. And so the problem is there's a huge disconnect between what women want in equality and and a lack of understanding by male leadership what needs to be done to bridge that gap. And so I think there's a lot of things that if men could understand a little bit better how women communicate and the effort to fit in, that education seems to be something that I don't see enough of. I see a lot of amazing women's groups. I see women's groups popping up everywhere. It makes my heart sing to see women promoting women and that camaraderie. The problem that I see, however, is that 
things will not change for women unless male leaders get involved. And that needs to be with an understanding of what the issues are with women. If you knew that women are scared to speak up, or by the way, an average woman uses 20,000 words a day, an average man uses 7,000. What's the reason? The reason is because women use words to connect with each other. There's a the researcher named Deborah Tannen, and, and she says that women communicate through intimacy and connection, yet men communicate through status and independence. So women are using extra words and are tremendous collaborators because that's how we've learned to communicate as a gender. It changes a lot when we think that way. And I bet most men listening to this podcast today probably hadn't thought of those things. I would say you are 100% correct in that most men I know have not thought of those things, understand those things. And it's a really bird's eye view into why we're confused a lot, right? I, I just need the details. <laughs> when, right? Like we're confused a lot, right? Because I'm hearing these words from, and I'm like, why do you use all these words? This is what I need to know. And back to your point on women's groups. And, and I also share that I have daughters. My wife is a professional. And I'm such a fan and advocate for that growth and that opportunity. And I want to be a part of the solution. But your point, I agree with 100%. How can women help women only when the power structure is still dominated by men? There's got to be an integration with some of those groups so that men and leaders are educated so we know how to be effective and help make those changes. There's a lot of want to but there's not enough how-to. Yes, they have to be involved in order to these women's groups to succeed and really truly lifting up women. I think the biggest challenge, especially, and, and Donald, you'll, you'll appreciate this being a creative and, 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 and the industry that, uh, that you're in, but a large majority of male leaders are very left-brained. And so for women who tend to be more predominantly right-brained, there's also a really big disconnect there because we're using, we're in this data-driven world where everything is, you know, use data for decision-making and things. And women are communicating with all these extra words, talking about relationships and intuition. And there is so much value in having art drive science and science drive art. And the human condition and persuasion, especially as I, as I speak as a marketer, is the key to driving those data-driven results. But the problem is, is that very analytical men, very highly left-brain men are the ones who are leading most of these technology companies. And they are not inclusive enough, oftentimes, to really understand that the, that the right balance and, and the diversity of their executive teams can really cause some amazing results if, that, if the balance is there. No. So if you're a left-brain you know, male, taking the time to understand with some patience. And I think that the biggest challenge is, is women are overcompensating so much. If there's a line between us, women are so far across the line to, to, to a man's world that even just for the men to come closer to the line to understand how we communicate would make such a difference in the quality of, of our genders. So let me flip that a little bit. I agree with you, both in my learning and education from what you're describing and the strength of research that you've quoted based on everything that you say. I'm going to ask this question knowing that you're right about that perspective. 
Now flip it. And what is the lady's responsibility to create that bridge with men? Because we're not going to get there by ourselves, right? Because we're not reading the same books necessarily. We're not going to the same workshops. How do we help and encourage men little by little to get there? That is a challenge. That is such a good question. It it really is because we're having these women's groups, but there's only so many female leaders that are at the top to rise up these women. So we need to insist that women have approached me with my company for us to start a women's group. And so I went to my fellow executive team, you know, members, and I said to the men that it's very critical that they participate and for us to do it and to do it successfully. And there's actually research that shows that 70% of these women's groups succeed because of male participation. So we've got to figure out what that looks like. So that's my, my first answer is that we've got to educate. We, we just do. The other thing is that it's just women need to speak up. So if we have more and more conversations, but I don't think the story is any different for people of color and, and the whole diversity and inclusion story in itself, there needs to be an awareness and an education and an effort. And it starts from the top and everything starts from the top and trickles down. And that's where, where change happens. That is fantastic. Megan, I'm going to, I want to give you a little space to see if you have any questions and, and you were part of the genesis of this conversation. And so I'm, I'm, I'm open to, to thoughts that you have or any questions you'd like to ask Lauren. I think what you said was really interesting. And what I've been thinking about the past five minutes or so, that thing about women using more words than men, especially because a huge part of my job is writing and something that I've done in my own journey toward not wanting to be a passive person specifically is removing any passive language from my writing. I've also read studies about the nuances of words women use, even in emails, like the likelihood of women to use the word just. And I feel like we're using all these words, yes, because we want to communicate. But also I wonder how much of it is that we're taught that we need to explain or rationalize our thought process more than men, or we're taught that we need to have more of a concrete understanding of X, Y, Z because we've been questioned or doubted more. Yeah, so I can't remember any specific studies, but I will tell you that a lot of themes in books that I have read in articles, because I'm constantly reading because this topic is fascinating, is that women will work extra hard in order to just justify their being. And I think, first of all, that, that causes a lot of pressure you know, on, on women. But I think that it's becoming, it's just very rampant, you know, that, that way. I'm trying to think if there's any other, you know, it's, it's interesting when I've been, I was a sales rep for 13 years and it was always interesting enough. The, the female salespeople were always at the top. As much as I, as I read about how competitive that, that uh, men are in a, in a sales capacity, the, as women, we're just so naturally consultative um, and caring. And at the end of the day, sales is about caring. And so we use such a natural superpower, you know, to excel. So, you know, I I think about those natural abilities that we have and and how they translate. But I do think we often are very overcompensating. I also think that often we get very defensive or we are interpreted as defensive. There's also a reason for that. I think things that I've read is that men are more comfortable as an emotion and anger it's more acceptable for men to be angry. And women tend to use emotions like, yes, yeah, so aggression 
or emotions like being upset. Because if you think about, again, back to how we're brought up, you know, that crazy little boy, he's just, you know, screaming. That little girl, you know, she's a crybaby. She's going to cry. And so a lot of those behaviors from when we were little come up in, it's funny, I bought some of my colleagues a necklace that says, I cry at work. I laugh so hard because through my, because through my career, I've, I've cried at work plenty of times myself. It's just kind of part of who we are as women. We have emotions and that's how we were taught to express them when we were little. So how can we change ourselves completely and truly be authentic to the corporate world? It's just not realistic. One of the things that I'm appreciative of this conversation, the authenticity, the candor, but even more important or, or weaving into all those things is the calmness of what you're describing this information to me. And so a point of feedback that I will share with you is that as a learner, I like to be educated, but being critiqued is hard just like it is for anyone else. And so if as a male leader, I'm being critiqued, 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 that I'm not doing something in a certain way, everyone has a natural defense mechanism up. But if you're teaching me how to move something forward and how I can get more value, I can raise up female leaders, my mind is open. And that's the temperament and the tone that I hear from you. And I think that is something that is good for all of us when we're teaching others. One of the things I want to pivot to, you mentioned a couple of books kind of in, interweaved in your talk. What are some of the books, podcasts that you think are must-haves for men to read to get a better view and visibility into the eyesight, into the lens, into the thought process of building and growing female leaders? Yeah, there's there's two in particular that I love. The first is a, is a book that just came out, I think, in the last year that's called Dare to Lead. It's by Brene Brown. Brene Brown is a social scientist. She is a scientist researching about shame. And shame is a emotion that comes out of perfection. She does a, a lot of studies about imperfection. And she has a TED Talk. She has several books. One of my favorite books of hers personally that I don't know if men would uh, associate as much is called The Gifts of Imperfection. That was pretty game-changing for me to read because I realized I was trying so hard to be perfect. And if I just embraced my clumsiness, I would really be a more authentic person. So Dare to Lead by Brene Brown is one I would recommend. The other that I was talking about, How Women Rise, even though it's got women in, in the title. You know, the, the book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. It's about behaviors that women are exhibiting that are holding them back, and it's based on research. So those are my favorite that would really speak to men. There is, for women, Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg of, of you know Facebook is oldie but goodie. You know, she was one of the pioneers to write these things. I think Harvest Business Review has some tremendous papers that talk to the subjects a lot. So those those really and there's tons, well, tons. There's several tremendous consultants on diversity and inclusion, and there's and and there's consultants that specialize in in women's empowerment uh, type activities. You know, a, as well that I in talking to people you know, in the triangle, they're starting to use more and more of these consultancies because they take this diversity and inclusion very seriously as they should. Because we know from research that if, if you work in a, a DNI environment, you're are gonna thrive and it will impact your your bottom line. 
that's fantastic. And, and I appreciate those recommendations. The book by Cheryl Sanderberg, Lean In, I remember reading that on a plane. <laughs> I was flying back from Germany and I read the book during that flight. And I was sitting next to a leader at a firm, ABB, that actually was in organizational change. And so a couple of hours into the flight, she said, I'm super curious. Uh, don't take this odd. Why are you reading this book? And I was, you know, I, I paused for a minute and I said, well, she's super successful, right, as a business person. So I wanted to understand, you know, her perspective on on business and different things. But it was one of the only ways I could get a deeper understanding of some of the issues that were facing female executives and women that we were growing because I don't have that experience, but at least I could be more aware. And one of the specific items in that book that has stuck with me is she recounts her negotiation on her pay package with Mark Zuckerberg and that she actually took, even after her MBA, even after all her experience in government and business, she took the first offer and went home and told her husband and her brother. And they were like, what are you talking about? And she went back and renegotiated by saying, listen, the first offer is fair. I'm very appreciative of everything that you did. But if I didn't make you sharpen your pencil and do a little bit better, then how would I ever be able to negotiate on your behalf? And he raised the offer another like 15%. Right? That's amazing. It was, it was a great, I'll, I'll never forget that example, right, that was in that book. But she phrased it in a way that befit her personality but she still asked yes. the question. Yes, I love that. I remember that too. It's great. So as we wind our, our time together, what would you like to share that I haven't asked? Hmm, sure. There's another layer of dimension to me as a professional in that, that my family is from Argentina. And I was born in Spain and I... Grew up in a bilingual home. The majority of my life I spent in the States, but all of my family from Argentina, all my immediate family was in the States and a very big part of my life growing up. So in addition to being a woman in business, I'm a Hispanic woman in business. And I'll tell you, it took me a very long time to own that. People would say, you don't look Hispanic, um, like Hispanic looks like something. Latin America makes up, you know, 33 countries and we look like lots of different people. If anything, it's helped me to eavesdrop in Spanish a, a great deal. But the reason why I didn't own it is I was such a um, a Latino American. And but then I figured if JLo could own being Hispanic, I certainly could being born in Spain and coming from an Argentinian family. And so one day I had this tremendous epiphany. I said, oh, my gosh, I communicate like a Hispanic person. I am passionate. I am loud. I am emotional. I am loyal. I love children and family is my most important thing in, in my life. And I love to dance and hug people. I am so Hispanic. It's not even funny. The other thing I noticed and a friend said, told me a term that I had never heard about before, and it's called code switching. And I don't know if you've heard this term before. I think it's one of those words that through modern times have maybe changed in definition some. I think it was originally used for people who, you know, speak Spanglish, that they, you know, might go back and forth between languages, depending on who the audience is. But code switching has been used really as a description for people of color, where 
I didn't realize I was code switching, but then one day I realized I really was that I could be with my Latino friends or my family and be loud and gregarious and passionate and dance around. But as soon as I got in that boardroom, I had to completely change how I communicated into much a much less authentic version of myself. And I noticed this so much of whether it's, you know, men and women of color that I have worked with, whether on my teams or as peers, is that the lack of authenticity, the lack of being able to just be yourself and be included for who you are in your race is something that I'm very, very passionate about. And then I've started to own. What's interesting for me is that now I'm really, truly taking ownership of being a Hispanic woman, where I've been on several panels or had speaking engagements at women's conferences. And I will have women who approach me after I speak and they said, you know what? You're like me. <laughs> like, this is amazing. Like, I don't see women like me on stage. And you don't know how much it's meant to me that a Hispanic woman is on stage. Very emotional, you know, to me. And so I do, I do feel a sense of responsibility. And I do believe that not only for women, but for women and men of color and of perceived disabilities and diversity, you know, goes across the gamut to, to emotional and mental disability and physical disability. I really think we need to rethink how we change how we think and how how we communicate to use all the abilities of all people and their perspectives. I don't have a thing to add to that. That was a beautiful way to close our time together. My claim to fame is when there's nothing left to be said. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate this time today. That was Lauren Shumate. VP of Marketing at OneSource. And thank you, Lauren, for coming on the show and sharing your insight. I absolutely loved our conversation. Be sure to check out the show notes at donaldthompson.com, where we'll put links to the LinkedIn thread that Lauren and I discussed, as well as links to books we referenced. How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson. Lean In by Cheryl Sandberg. What Got You Here Won't Get You There by Marshall Goldsmith. And then both Dare to Lead and The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that when we release the rest of the season, starting in early May, you'll be the first to know. This episode was edited and produced by Earphones. If you're interested in full-service podcast production for your business or your personal journey, head on over to Earphones.com. Intro and outro music for this episode is You Can't Stop Me from Jensen Reed. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon on the Donald Thompson Podcast.